0: this is Historical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to immortal perfumes in this series we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix i'm your host jt seams the potions master at immortal perfumes join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past this month's entry is the tale of Artemisia Gentileschi, a Baroque painter who brought the man who wronged her to his knees. Welcome back to historical, dear listeners. Today, we're talking about an artist whose story I only learned about a few months ago, but I gotta tell you, probably one of the most interesting ladies I've ever read about. Today, we're talking about Artemisia Gentileschi, one of the premier artists of the Baroque era. And I have to tell you, whenever I hear the word Baroque, I immediately think of the joke that I didn't understand as a child in Beauty and the Beast when Cogsworth says, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Sorry, couldn't pass up on that opportunity. And just for any listeners out there who need it, I'd like to offer a trigger warning for this episode as rape and violence are discussed, but I will not be using any particularly graphic details. All right, where to begin? Artemisia has one of those stories where there's no other reaction than, yes, queen, or get a girl, no other reaction. But let's start at the beginning. First off, the Baroque era was from about 1600 to 1750. To kind of orient you as to where we are in history, the main composers of this time were Bach, Handel, and Vivaldi. And in the art world, you've got Caravaggio, Peter Paul Rubens, and Rembrandt. And if you're like, hey, wait, where are all the ladies? Well, may I introduce you to Artemisia, who was born in 1593. So right at the dawn of this era, Queen Elizabeth I was in power over in England, a country which will come into play for Artemisia later. For much of history, the story of Artemisia started and ended with her father, with Artemisia as more of an interesting footnote. Not so anymore. Her father was a respected working painter in Rome named Orazio Gentileschi. He had a wife, Prudenzia, three sons, and Artemisia, who is his eldest child. Let me just pause here for a second. I am actually half Italian by heritage, but I never learned the Italian language. So as always, I will be butchering these words. So I'm really, really, very really sorry. Okay. Orazio was kind of a middling painter who got commissions in town at various chapels, but he wasn't lighting the art world on fire with his own originality. That was until he met a young painter named Caravaggio. Caravaggio lit up 17th century painting with the innovative use of light and shadow, as well as painting directly from live nude models, which at the time was just gasp. Orazio actually befriended Caravaggio, and this got him some gigs, but both were hot-tempered and their friendship was short-lived. This, however, would have a lasting impact on Artemisia, as she was Caravaggio's only female follower. When Artemisia was 12 years old, her mother died in childbirth. This tragedy put Artemisia's future in jeopardy. Because she was a girl, and we all know how that went, her father didn't initially think about a career in art for her at all. He had plans for her to become a nun. But while Orazio's sons didn't show much interest or talent in painting, Artemisia proved herself a talented and willing student. She would work in her father's studio as something of an apprentice. She was responsible for mixing paint colors and also learned to draw as well as painting technique. Orazio taught Artemisia himself, and within three years, she had created her first painting in the style of Caraggio. and okay, she was only 15 years old, and when I say it was her first painting, we're talking an extremely famous painting, Susanna and the Elders. Please check the show notes for a link so you can get a visual, but here's some background. Artemisia and a lot of Baroque painters were very keen on painting biblical stories. The story of Susanna and the Elders is pretty horrible. The gist of it was a young married woman was bathing while her husband was away from home, and two of the town's elders watched her, like peeping toms, with the intent to rape her. Okay, so that's the story. Here's why Artemisia's painted version of this is so radical and impressive. Art, as well as pretty much all of history, was dominated by men and Susanna and the Elders was a popular subject. Except all the versions that came before Artemisia's suffered from the male gaze. These depictions of Susanna had her as a coy lady, like, oh my, I appear to have lost my clothes. Feel free to have a look. Whereas in Artemisia's painting, Susanna is visibly distressed and trying to push these demonic-looking men away. That's not to say anything about her use of color, light, and shadow. Again, Artemisia was 15 years old. All right. So we've established that Artemisia was a well of talent. Her father had been instructing her, but props to him for knowing when the student becomes the master, because it became apparent that she progressed beyond what he could teach. So let's talk a second about what a 17th century artist studio was like. Artists and apprentices would be coming in and out at all hours of the day and night. Models in various stages of undress would be present. People looking to buy art would be coming in. It was a bustling place with kind of an open door policy. Keep that info in your back pocket. Orazio knew his daughter needed an instructor to help her progress. He had been working with a man named Agostino Tassi on a commission for a museum and hired him to teach Artemisia. You can guess where this is going. Orazio was away from home one day while Artemisia worked in their studio. A woman named Tuzia lived upstairs and was a friend of the family. she had even befriended Artemisia. Well, Tuzia was a horrible person and world's worst friend because she let Tossie and another man into the studio. Artemisia was busy painting, and Tossie came thundering into the room and shouted, not so much painting, not so much painting. He then raped this poor girl who was only 17 at the time. Artemisia called out to Tuzia, and Tuzia pretended she didn't hear anything. And the reason why we know all of this, which we'll get to in a second, is because she had a very famous trial and all of it was written down, which is kind of not a thing back then. That's why we have so much information about Artemisia. Orazio was super pissed off when he found out about the rape, but not for reasons that you'd think. At the time, people didn't have the same view of rape being a crime against an individual. It was a crime against a family's honor. So Orazio demanded that Tassi marry Artemisia to make everything square. You know, just marry your child off to a rapist. Sounds like a great idea. Because she was now promised to him, the two began having regular sex. But then Tassi backed out of marrying her, and now Orazio was like, I'm taking you to court. Again, not for his daughter, but for his own reputation. The trial was a sensation in Rome. Everyone knew about it, and it was a source of gossip. This poor girl who had lost her mother at 12 was basically slut-shamed because she grew up in her father's studio with men coming and going at all hours. Tassi, of course, denied the allegations. It was a he said, she said situation. So what do you think a 17th century court might do to try to prove the veracity of the testimony? Why torture the victim, of course. They gave Artemisia, not the alleged rapist, but Artemisia, a lie detector test of torture by thumbscrews. What is torture by thumbscrews? You may be wondering. It was a primitive machine that basically slowly crushed your fingers or poked them with sharp metal points. While they were torturing her, this badass girl shouted at her rapist, this is the ring you give me and these are your promises. I just, I just absolutely love her. So strong, so brave, so fierce. She passed the test and not only did she pass the test over the course of the seven month trial, it came out that Tossie actually had a different last name that he had changed because he was trying to pass as nobility and that he was already married. Crazier still, his wife was missing when all of this was going down, and it's believed that he first raped his sister-in-law, then hired a hit on his wife, and the final part of the plan was to rape Artemisia and steal Arazio's paintings. Something unheard of for the time happened. Tossi was convicted. Artemisia actually got justice. Tossi went to prison for two years, but he did get released early, which sucks. Still, though, she was just getting started on her path to greatness, while Tassi went down in history for being rapist. Revenge. Dish best served cold sometimes, my friends. Undoubtedly, that was a super traumatic experience for her. Like I said, though, people at the time had a different view of rape. Living in Rome, which was the epicenter of the Catholic Church, people were religious and believed that their soul was more important than their material body. Our modern view on rape being a crime against a person's bodily autonomy was not how they viewed it, so we truly don't know her actual feelings on what happened to her. I bring this up because many of her paintings were very brutal and gory and featured ladies killing men. We'll talk more about the rest of her life in a second, but I just wanted to bring this up because modern art historians tend to frame all of her work as her basically just doing art therapy to process this evil thing that was done to her. I'm sure her experience influenced some of her art to some extent, but the idea that her story starts and ends with her rape is not fair and completely reduces what a brilliant painter, businesswoman, and self-promoter she was. Okay, with all that said, let's get to Artemisia's second act. After the trial, Orazio arranged a marriage for Artemisia to some rando, unimportant painter. They immediately left for Florence, and Artemisia seemed content with the arrangement. All she wanted to do was paint and get paid for her work. And my dear listeners, in Florence, our girl flourished. See what I did there? First, she became a court painter for none other than the Medicis. This got her considerable fame and recognition. She was then accepted to the Academy of the Arts of Drawing, which I'm not even going to attempt to say in Italian. And this was a big deal because she was the first woman ever allowed into this guild. And keep in mind, Michelangelo you know, of Sistine Chapel fame was one of the founding members of this academy, so Artemisia was clearly respected. She lived in Florence for about six years and had five children, though only one survived, a daughter named Prudenzia after her mother. Her husband, though, not an awesome guy. He cheated on her and gambled away their money and just generally was jealous of her talent and success. But Artemisia was living her best life. She had a passionate affair with a wealthy noble. Her husband knew full well about it, too, and couldn't do anything because he was paying their bills. Michelangelo's grandnephew was also a famous artist, and he personally asked Artemisia to contribute a painting to the ceiling of a monument to his uncle. She also had a best friend that you may have heard of named Galileo. It was during her time in Florence that one of her most famous paintings, Judith Slaying Holofernes, was completed. This was another popular biblical story that was frequently painted by artists. And listeners, this painting is deeply disturbing, but also absolutely transfixing to look at. The Cliffs Notes version of the story is that Judith was a Jewish woman helped by her maidservant Abra to kill the Assyrian general Holofernes who had been sent to destroy their city. In the painting, two women are beheading a man who is writhing in agony. Blood is spilling and the women look completely strong like they are taking care of business. There is no weakness or fear as other paintings depicting the subject would portray them. The vibrant color blue of Judith's dress and the spurts of blood all over contrasted with a dark background make it visually striking. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to see it, but please note, very graphic. This is the main painting that people point to, to say that she was working out her demons. I'm sure to a certain extent, somewhere psychologically in her mind, that was true. But also keep in mind that people were really into shocking, gory stuff at the time. And she was all about giving the people what they want and getting paid. All right. Well, word about her affair with the nobleman started going around and she and her husband and daughter left Florence for Rome. She had been gone for six years and had a hard time finding commissions. Her husband was super jealous of her, and that, plus the financial problems, led him to walk out on Artemisia and Prudencia. But this was like an ideal scenario for her. She was finally free from men, she owed nothing to anyone, she was free to travel, and she taught her daughter to paint as well. Her daughter actually became a painter just like her mom. Looking for a new home for her daughter, she moved to Venice. There, she got a commission from Philip IV of Spain, which got her back on track. When the plague of 1630 hit, she fled to Spanish-ruled Naples and got even more commissions for a major church. This was huge, because even though she had enjoyed considerable success with her paintings, it was still a boys' club. And the big public commissions for churches and museums always went to men. During these years, her father, Orazio, had made connections with Marie de Medici, who was the mother of the King of France. This connection got him a job as the court painter for Charles I of England. He enjoyed this position for 13 years and asked Artemisia to come join him. She did so reluctantly in 1638. Father and daughter had not seen each other in 17 years and were now working together again. Orazio died unexpectedly, and Artemisia stayed on in London for two years. In 1641, she went back to Naples and lived there until her death in either 1652 or 1653. As you can see, regardless of whether or not she painted revenge fantasies in her graphic works, Artemisia lived a good long life that was marked with success and love. She was a survivor, and in the end, she had the last laugh. That is the real revenge. Just this year a painting from her London period was rediscovered and it depicted David and Goliath. Also this year, a Google doodle depicting the artist appeared on July 8th, her birthday. And when I actually intended to get this podcast out in the 400 years since her death, She was mostly relegated as a secondary to her father, but in the 1990s, she became more well known in feminist circles and since then has become an icon. I personally only learned about her in January of this year when I was volunteering at the Seattle Art Museum for the exhibit Flesh and Blood. They had Judith Slaying Holofernes on display. and Like I said, it was so transfixing. I stopped to read her story. was absolutely hooked. There's quite a bit of good stuff out there if you'd like to continue your enjoyment of Artemisia's work and her life. First off, There's a historical novel written in verse called Blood Water Paint by Joy McCullough that I actually got at the exhibit gift shop and we recently read in the potions and paperbacks Facebook group. And you can join that group at the link in the show notes if you'd like to get in on monthly book club. Novels written in verse are my new favorite thing. The book is so incredibly impactful and really makes Artemisia come to life. I highly recommend it. If you're looking for other podcast biographies of Artemisia's life, there is an episode by Steffi Mist in History Class, as well as Art History Babes, and both of those will be up in the show notes. Next, there's a play by the Breach Theatre in the UK called it's True, it's True, It's True, It's True, and it's based on Artemisia's rape trial. They had the play online at the start of the pandemic, but I'm not sure that it's still available. I watched it, and it was superb. It had an all-lady cast, and they acted out Artemisia's paintings. So, so well done. Maybe sign up for updates on their website in case they release it again. There was also a 1997 French-language film called Artemisia, but it's only available on DVD. It doesn't appear to be streaming anywhere. I saw the DVD cover for it, and Seattle Weekly, of all publications, used the word erotic to describe it. And the movie is about her rape, so not sure that that's one I want to watch, but it's out there if you're interested. Last, if you're lucky enough to live within easy distance of London, the National Gallery had to postpone a blockbuster exhibition on her work, and it's now slated to open on October 3rd. All right, my dear listeners, that's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed learning about Artemisia. If you have the time, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps me win the algorithm and find more listeners. I'm actually working on an Artemisia perfume, as well as a Frida Kahlo perfume. It's going to be called The Muses Collection. I'm hoping for a fall release, but just depends on my situation. So I'll keep you updated. I'm also hoping to get back to a more regular schedule for historical soon, but my next episode will be out later this month for sure in celebration of Mary Shelley's birthday. I'll have an all new edition of footnotes for you.